Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Now to the uh, story of the, the crash on Highway 400, just uh, south of Barrie, Ontario. Any of you across Canada who are familiar with that area will know exactly what I'm talking about. Anybody who's driven on a major highway will understand, and that's all of us, will understand what what was suddenly happened on that road. Fourteen vehicles, three men are dead, an inferno, apocalyptic flames, apparently just one of the worst accidents that... Uh, Many people would hope to never, ever have to witness. And with us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network is Steve Foxcroft. He's the vice president of Fluke Transport from Hamilton, Ontario, a large uh, trucking firm in the city. Steve, how are you? I'm good, Roy. Good to hear you again. Yeah, it's good to talk with you again. Steve, What was what's your reaction to what happened on uh, on Highway 400? What's the immediate visceral reaction from someone who's in the trucking business? I think what you said, Roy, is how we react first. We react as humans and uh, the tragic part of it, uh, the loss of lives and everything like that. And then, of course, we go to the industry that we're involved in and we look at each other and we say, like right off the top, you said about trucker safety. Are we, are we safer these days on the roads and as truckers and the equipment? And I guess I like that to our personal lives in our your vehicles and take care of vehicles better than others. Some of us service more. And it's the same thing in the trucking industry where some of the companies service their equipment better than others. And then that translates into uh, what happens on the roads each day, not only with passenger vehicles, but our, our trucks and transports as well. Yeah, I was exchanging email with someone who's in the trucking business earlier, and this uh, individual... Uh, emailed to me, now look, if you have one incident, let's say a gravel hauler throws a rock up at your windshield, you will then take that incident and you'll maybe say, well, all truckers are a problem. One incident with one truck will cause you to judge the entire industry. I don't know how true that is. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. We're going to talk to our callers later. But this situation with uh, with, with these trucks uh, and you talk about safety, and some trucks are safer than others. Isn't there also an issue with uh, some of the very small companies uh, sometimes having up to three drivers in the truck at one time so the truck's never off the road? That's right. We get into a couple of maybe three three issues, Roy. We get into the equipment and the maintenance of the equipment, whether the equipment is, is up to standard or not. Then you get into weather conditions. The scariest one for me is fog when you can't see the people in front of you. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then you get into driver fatigue and distracted driving. I think those are the three issues. And again, it applies to passenger vehicles and transportation, us, and and everyone has a story. Everyone has a story. And I think it does, people paint everyone with one brush if they've had an incident. And with our company, you know, everyone knows our fluke name in the GTA area. And if there's one incident where a fluke truck cuts somebody off or does something to it, then it's all our drivers are painted that way. Yeah, if it's on time, it's a fluke. Right. And also, it's like all the, it's, I liken it to the airlines as well. Thousands of flights a day go off safely. And then we hear of the one, right? And then we hear of the problems surrounding that. And think of the thousands of deliveries by trucks that happen uh, without incident. But, of course, there is going to be an incident. Is The roadways are busy, and there's those three factors that I mentioned as well mm-hmm. that play into it. Steve, though, the Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner put truckers on notice after three deadly accidents in Ontario this summer. And I don't know if this statistic is correct. I read it, and I tried to double-check it, but I'm going back to my original source all the time. But it says there have been 5,000 transport truck collisions with 67 deaths between January and October of this year in the province of Ontario. Does that sound possible to you? Yeah, I think you got to believe the numbers, right? you got to believe the numbers. And uh, everything, it's the, it's the number of uh, transports are on the road, too. Like, you have, to, you have to know that. Look at the roads out there. Everything in the world is on a truck at some point. You know, I challenge anyone to name something if you look around your house. Uh, that hasn't been on a truck at some point. So we're a necessity. 
having the trucks out there is a necessity. And that, therefore, the roads are going to be uh, crowded. And in many cases, again, using the GTA, using the big metropolitans of this country, the roads aren't equipped to handle the, uh, the amount of traffic that's on them. When the commissioner of the Ontario Provincial Police issues an on-notice to the entire trucking industry, how often does that sort of thing happen? Because what I'm gathering here is the OPP had a really has a very serious concern about what's happening on the highways and specifically involving trucks at this particular time. We hear that in that 400 crash, Steve, and the uh, all the bits and pieces are still being put together as far as the inqu- the, 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 the the forensic uh, investigation is concerned. But one of the stories, is, so the prevailing story, is that one of the transport trucks seems to have continued traveling too fast while traffic ahead of it had significantly slowed because of another accident. And that transport truck plowed into those vehicles ahead, causing the situation that the OPP commissioner called apocalyptic. So... Um, I mean, when, 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 a, when, when an Ontario Provincial Police Commissioner issues one of these all-points bulletins before that accident happens, putting the industry on notice, does that say to you that the industry is in trouble? I think it, it's like a lot of things. When things happen like that, they go through blitzes. Like in the holiday season, that's when we increase the ride programs that are around. Yeah. So I think it's a reactive thing to that. Unfortunately, then the accident did happen because it did come beforehand. I'd like to think that many companies around the country are like ours, that we don't need to be put on notice to be concerned about the health and safety of our drivers, the other people on the road, and our equipment. Like, we have a fleet maintenance program that we adhere to on a yearly basis. Everything comes in. Everything is um, maintained, and it's scheduled, and it's recorded, and so on. But unfortunately, there isn't. that doesn't take place all the time. You know, we get back to, in our passenger vehicles, some of us service them more than others. I'd like to see more, like we just mentioned, the ride programs and so on. I'd like to see more roving spot checks. A lot of the truckers, you know, you see the scales at the side of the road. Yes. You don't see as much of the roving spot checks that we could have in play. And maybe target some of these uh, renegade transports. And you can almost tell by seeing them on the road. They, They stick out. You can look at a truck much like when you're driving along, you see an old car, you see a beat-up car or something like that, yeah. you can tell that with the trucks as well. Yeah, and, and Steve, when, when, something like, held accountable. when something like Highway 400 happens, uh, the, the people who get questioned and the people who are willing to talk to us are people like you who run the reputable trucking firms. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Steve Foxcroft is with me, Vice President of Fluke Transport in Hamilton. Steve, is there an industry expectation? What happens to a driver who has an at-fault serious accident? Yeah, we, um, it's number one, it's your insurance, and number two, it, it would go towards your progressive discipline, right? Like, uh, so you would bring them in and uh, just do your normal course of action up to termination and so on. Um, nothing from really the ministry, though, however, other than your, your normal traffic violations and tickets. That's okay, what, what would cause a driver to be dismissed? Um, well, anything where they break the rules, like anything where it's a serious uh, um, violation of the traffic traffic act, mm-hmm. or then your own rules of your company, right, if they're in violation of your code of conduct. Okay. So it would be sort of similar to any other normal employment. Uh, before you hire a driver, what sort of parameters does that driver have to be able to uh, to meet what what uh, regular what what uh, what constitutes a pass and employment yeah. it would be so of course the different uh licenses that they would be required to have for the weight of the truck and so on they'd have to have that they have a cvr rating that they have to have and then the last thing that we do of course is we have them road tested by one of our uh, superiors like we have people that do that road testing and then they would have to pass that that would be the final step, but everything, all the all the boxes have to be ticked before we would consider hiring somebody. And I, that's standard practice in the industry too. Roy, I'm happy to report. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about? And this is a part of the email exchange I had with a trucker earlier today, and and he got into the issue of truckers getting on the radio and warning each other where police are, as far as radar checks are concerned, 
so that they don't get a ticket and then they slow down where the police are and they speed up where the police aren't. Mm. How do you deal with that as a company? Is there a regulation that you expect your drivers to follow? Is that uh, something you can't regulate because the drivers are on the road and it's going to happen? We do. We expect them that they obey the traffic laws. And fortunately for us, we, we cover mostly in the GTA, like basically a Windsor to Montreal corridor and so on. But when you're in the GTA, sometimes it's hard to speed, Roy. Like when no, you're I on understand. the 400 series of highways or when you're on the QEW. And, yeah. the, and again, this is an Ontario thing. And, and I'm sure there's other areas of the country that are similar. It's hard to speed in some areas. No, I understand that. But where the opportunity exists... And drivers communicate with each other and tell each other where the police are. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that can cause additional issues, can it not? With trucks then driving more more quickly than they should, given the circumstances, Absolutely. reach the conditions. Yeah. We we frown upon that. We don't want that. We just want them to go the speed limit or a little under the speed limit, given the time and distance it takes for yeah. a big rig to stop, and especially if you're loaded. And that's a, one of the troubling parts too. Is if we do say it from the complaint that we have from our um, from our drivers, we get um, they're in the right hand lane per se. Some, or for example, and someone will cut in front of them. They've they've given themselves enough time and distance, mm-hmm. and then passenger vehicles use that as an opportunity to use it as a passing lane to get someone ahead of them. Mm-hmm. And it's tough on the truckers, right? Like they're constantly almost getting shuffled back in the in the right hand lane and so on as passenger vehicles come in front of them. And I and I'm sure that most people that do that, they don't have it in their head that, hey, I just cut in front of a big 18-wheeler that's loaded, and the the time and space that I've given him by cutting in front of him, if something happened, there's no way that they'd be able to stop. Well, just reading something from the Insurance Institute for Highway Safety in the United States, uh, they write, the main problem is the vulnerability of people traveling in smaller vehicles. Trucks often weigh 20 to 30 times as much as a passenger car, and are taller with greater ground clearance, which can result in smaller vehicles underriding the trucks in crashes, and truck braking capability can be a factor as well. Loaded tractor trailers take 20 to 40 percent further to stop than a car. So you have to keep that in mind. Steve, thank you very much for the time. Great speaking with you. It's a terrible situation, but out of these situations, hopefully it evolves some dialogue and and maybe uh, more um, responsibility uh, on behalf of everyone. I, I agree with you, Roy, and uh, thanks for the time, and thanks for tackling the hard issues like you always do. Thanks, Steve. Appreciate it. Steve Foxcroft, Vice President of Fluke Transport. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So last weekend, Dr. Zudi Jasser was on this program, as he has been many, many times, and uh, the founder of the American Islamic Forum for Democracy former United States Navy Lieutenant Commander, past president of the Arizona Medical Association and nuclear cardiologist, author of Battle for the Soul of Islam. And Dr. Jasser told us that he'd been invited by the Canadian Parliament to attend a hearing for Motion 103, the anti-Islamophobia motion, that never has provided a definition of what Islamophobia is. So Dr. Jasser made his way to Canada from Arizona to participate with the Parliamentary Committee, MPs from the individual political parties, and he presented his case. And he told us on this program more than once, more than twice, more than three times, that he doesn't like the term Islamophobia, that it doesn't do anything, anything for Muslims, and that he opposes it. So he very graciously and um, politely made his case to the MPs. The liberal MPs, one in particular, was not enthralled with Dr. Jasser and apparently called him an extremist. And he lumped in Rahil Raza as well because one witness had said she'd had something to do with rebel media. Well, perhaps that MP and all the MPs who have a problem with Rahil Raza should do a little bit of history studying about their own parliament, because when Rahil Raza spoke to the Canadian parliament, she received a standing ovation from MPs and senators. 
Anyway, I had a conversation. Oh, Scott Reed is a conservative member of parliament. He's part of that committee, and Scott was listening. He was there. He heard what was going on. He was so... I'll let him choose the word he wants, but I'll use disappointed in what took place between Dr. Jasser and the Canadian Liberal MP that Scott Reed posted on Facebook, his feelings. And we'll talk to Scott Reed after I play back for you the interview that I recorded on Thursday, this past Thursday, with Dr. Jasser about his experience with Canada's parliamentarians. Dr. Jasser, did the committee give you background on M103? What did they tell you about the motion before you arrived? And did they give you any expectation of what they wanted from you? Uh, they just simply uh, sent me the um, what they were charged with and, and the fact that they had 250-plus uh, days to uh, address it and then respond back. Uh, there was no pretext as to what they wanted from me other than for me to provide testimony on uh, M103 and what my opinion was of it. So I provided a, a long-form uh, written testimony to them that I've distributed and posted, and then I was given 10 minutes uh, to summarize my comments. And I basically laid out that, uh, you know, Canadians need to be aware of uh, primary, the primary problem being unintended consequences, that uh, this was started by uh, MP Ikra Khalid. Uh, it did arise out of E411, and that the language would simply focus on Islamophobia, while it may be intended to prevent bigotry against Muslims, any type of uh, democracy looking at a, the, even the term or the concept Islamophobia would end up enacting blasphemy laws and protecting an idea, Islam, rather than protecting Muslims. And that's really smacks of the language of theocracy. So uh, I'm, is it fair to assume that some of them, most of them, were not exactly welcoming of your position? Yeah, what was interesting is that my understanding is that the standing committee was supposed to be uh, gathering information, bringing witnesses to uh, get our opinions. I mean, they can go back and deliberate and and uh, do with it what they want, but actually what happened was, uh, other than my 10 minutes, and uh, some of the uh, conservatives uh, did ask me some questions and wanted some responses, the, the three liberals that asked me questions basically took up the seven minutes lecturing me, uh, especially Arif Varani, uh, who basically used up his entire time uh, to lecture me about my position and how offended he was and that the resolution had nothing to do with M103, had nothing to do with Islamophobia, it was simply protecting minorities. And uh, uh, then he went to saying that I offended the 70,000 citizens that signed uh, the uh, E411. Uh, so uh, it was just sort of a bizarre, uh, almost like it, the standing committee was on a stage rather than actually gathering information from those of us giving testimony. Must have been embarrassing to to hear that. It was, and you know, I saw a post from uh, MP uh, Scott Reed who um, apologized uh, to me publicly. Uh, uh, not that he had to, but um, on behalf of uh, his committee, and uh, actually, he wasn't on the committee, but on behalf of, uh, of the Canadian Parliament, and and basically saying that uh, he was ashamed of what uh, Varani did, and uh, uh, Jenny Kwan also. Uh, didn't ask me a question, but tried to correct me, saying that this was uh, not about Islamophobia. It was about any and all minorities, which just was not true. And uh, he was hoping that the standing committee uh, would actually deliberate and gather information rather than uh, simply grandstanding. Uh, so I think, uh, obviously, these things, as much as they may be intended to help improve Canadian society, uh, appear to be simply uh, more uh, partisan uh, politics rather than a reality of improving uh, civil society. Zuri, was it your sense that the MPs, those who challenged you, uh, didn't know what M103 really was and, and what it signifies to you, or are they in there with an agenda? That is uh, <laughs> such a great question, Roy. The example was, Varani, when he was attacking me, said, the example of how biased I was was that I cited Raheel Raza as a colleague of our reform movement and and that uh, Raheel, because she's associated with rebel media and other what he called extreme outlets, uh, is not credible and an example of how uh, not credible I was. And then when the chair, because some of conservative uh, 
uh, responses. Uh, uh, they insisted that I be given some time to respond. She added one minute and gave me 60 seconds to respond. In that response, I said that uh, he should be ashamed of himself because uh, he obviously cannot disagree with any of the substance I presented or any of the substance that Raheel presents in her ideas on women's rights, on uh, liberty, free speech, and other things. So instead, he attacks us with guilt by association, which is exactly what he protests happens to Muslims all the time. So he's quite a hypocrite for doing that. And I think it's an example that they don't care about the substance of what we talk about or the reality that happens inside mosques or inside Muslim communities. It's all simply about uh, partisan hackery, if you will. And uh, I was uh, disappointed in that. It's clearly they have an agenda about this. And I think he proved my point by not responding to the value of M103 and dismissing my comments. Uh, there's clearly an agenda here to try to suppress a conversation publicly about Islam and Muslims, which needs to happen. Zudi, should Canadians be worried? Yes, because the the conversation about Islam and Muslims should not simply be limited to uh, identity politics and protecting Islam from criticism. This is a national security issue globally with Islamist movements. This is an issue about the identity of Canadian uh, principles and culture and nationalism. So, yeah, I think if you're going to lose battles like this in a committee that uh, is getting duped by a, a liberal MP that has an Islamist agenda, like Ikra Khalid and Arif Varani and others, uh, then you're going to lose your Canadian identity to I, what I feel is part of this global Islamist insurgency. So I think the good thing that you shouldn't be worried is that I was invited, that you had a number of MPs that have spoken up and, and thanked me for exposing some of what's actually happening there. And you've had a number of other Muslims who've testified, including Tariq Fatah, Rahil Raza, and others. So I think the battlefront is just opening up, uh, but they need to be engaged and not surrender. I guess the last question for you would be this one. If uh, M103 raises the concerns that you've raised, Zudi, is there the possibility that at some point in the not-too-distant future a conversation like this one that we've just had would be considered to be Islamophobic? Absolutely. This is the issue. And uh, as much as Varani tried to lecture me that it was insulting to Canadians to compare it to theocracy in Saudi Arabia, Muslims who question the government are put in prison not for criticizing the king, but for criticizing Islam. They equate criticizing their government with criticizing Islam. They equate dissent with Islamophobia. So there is a slippery slope. Our governments were founded on, on challenging uh, autocracy, challenging theocracy. But as we saw in Europe, there was one generation away from slipping into fascism. So uh, I think in the guise of uh, uh, minority rights, in the guise of uh, uh, identity politics, uh, you can see a slide away from true free speech. And this is something I told them at the committee. I said the true test, and I told Arif this, I said the true test of your democracy is not how you treat the center squishy middle that wants to not offend anyone. The true test of your democracy is how you treat the peripheral, the folks on the margins who may say things that are offensive, that are distasteful, but aren't openly impending violence on an individual. So we must protect their freedom, and that's how a democracy is tested. Those that are most offensive, not the ones that are in the squishy middle. Always appreciate the conversation, Zudi. Thank you so much. Anytime. Thanks for having me, Roy. Dr. Zudi Jasser, as I spoke with him on Thursday morning about his appearance before the Parliamentary Heritage Committee on Motion 103 this past Monday. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Scott Reed is a Conservative Member of Parliament from Ontario. He's a member of the committee investigating, or at least hearing, the positions on M103. And, uh, Scott, thank you for joining us. You had... Uh, you had an opinion on Arif Irani and the Liberals' response to Dr. Jasser, and you posted that on Facebook. But in your words, as you listen back to Dr. Jasser describe in his words how that went on Monday, what were you feeling? Well, when I was there watching it happen, I was just really uh, disappointed and frustrated. This is actually part of a pattern uh, I've been tweeting periodically when I see, in real time, when I see the Liberals. Uh, sometimes Mr. Varani, but he's not the only one, trying to shut down 
liberal Muslims or Muslim reformers, people within the Muslim community who are critical of um, um, of their own faith. Uh, that doesn't mean they're not loyal Muslims. Uh, Dr. Jasser started by saying, I love my faith. Um, but they are critical of the establishment. They're critical of political Islam and of Islamism. And for reasons that I can't exactly figure out, the liberals have been very, very aggressive uh, towards these witnesses. When uh, during the committee hearings, is any conversation going on between MPs? Were you able to say anything to Mr. Varani about what he was saying to Dr. Jasser, or were you just sitting there looking at him? Well, we sit at uh, a fairly far distance. We're around a, a circle of tables, and so we're not uh, in a position to lean over and whisper to them or anything of that nature. Uh, I did at one point call out in the middle. He was essentially going through a several-minute-long diatribe about uh, how extreme uh, uh, Dr. Jasser was, and uh, I could see he was using up all the available time, so I called out for the uh, how much time is there left, Madam Chair, as a way of pointing to what he was doing, uh, essentially you know, having a witness but denying that witness the right to speak out while uh, engaging in, in an attack on that person's character. Did Dr. Jasser say anything at all? in that meeting on Monday that concerned you? No. Well, I should be clear. I, he said things that were concerning to me. He didn't say things that I caused me to think he was an extremist. He's clearly a moderate, uh, someone who is anxious to achieve the integration uh, of his community, uh, Muslims, American Muslims, into their country, and who hopes the same thing will happen here, and who is worried, as I think, I think the vast majority of Muslims are, that the actions of extremists are causing the entire community to become an object of fear that the entire community does not deserve. That's effectively what he was saying. And he was saying that refusing to allow debate on this and criticisms of, of any aspect of uh, Islamic and Islamist politics has the effect of marginalizing uh, those who are reformers in their community. It actually targets and makes them, their lives much more difficult. Yeah. And the only thing that Zudi Jasser did was what he was asked to do. And he did it, he did it very eloquently. I, I read his speech. He put a lot of work into it. So he just did what he was asked to do, and for that he was attacked. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, reading here, Netflix fires Kevin Spacey from House of Cards after sexual assault allegations. Quite a few allegations against Spacey now who, um, according to more than one person now, has made uh, sexual advances to teenage boys. The, uh, the issue of sexual harassment and sexual assault and sexual abuse continues to gather momentum, sexual harassment. Uh, of course, I think most recently... Started the, the, the whole ball, as it were, started a roll with, with Bill Cosby, and I was glad that women were stepping forward and, and, and making themselves heard and saying no more. And now the celebrities, the male celebrities, are increasingly named as predators. But what about women who perhaps believe they have no option but to accept sexual harassment or abuse and rape? Does the law not protect them? And this has to do with a case uh, in Ottawa where a court a few days ago found the husband not guilty of raping his wife because according to the judge, the man who was part of an arranged marriage in Gaza believed that he could have intercourse with his Palestinian wife anytime he wanted to, even when she said no, which according to the judge, she probably did many times. Well, the woman also believed her husband could engage in intercourse any time he wanted to. But why does that matter? What he thought, or which she thought, if she said no and he went ahead, then isn't it rape? And you can't argue spousal considerations because in 1983, Canadian sexual assault law was amended to include sexual assault against a spouse. Joining me on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network to speak about this, as he does often about legal issues, 
is Scott Newark, former Alberta prosecutor, executive officer of the Canadian Police Association, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University. What am I missing here, Scott? 1983, the law changes. So yeah. there is no spousal exclusion to a rape allegation or a rape charge. But this judge says, well, you know, the husband, I don't really think the husband's that believable. She is. I believe her. But he's not guilty because he didn't understand what the law is. What's going on? Um, it, uh, when, I, when I first saw this reported, uh, and congratulations, frankly, are due to the reporter, Andrew Duffy, from the Ottawa Citizen, people sometimes forget about the important role that the, uh, the media plays. Uh, he realized that this was a case that had some larger issues as well, too, as you've just described, and he published the story. Uh, because the, the judgment itself is subject to publication bans, ironically, if you can believe it, to protect the victims. Uh, but I've obtained a copy of the judgment, and I read it. And, and Roy, it is uh, just a, apart from what I think is absolutely incorrect uh, uh, interpretation of the existing law, which we can get into, the whole thing, the, the portion that deals with the uh, sexual assault uh, allegations, is about, you know, three pages long. It is a, a really, really shoddy legal decision, in my opinion. And as you pointed out in your introduction, not only is it, um, uh, I think, uh, philosophically offensive in the, uh, that the judge would make the ruling that he did, but we have very, very specific provisions in our criminal law, in our criminal code, hello, the law of Canada, that actually say that, uh, you know, you have to have the consent of the person to be involved in sexual contact. And as you say, a specific section that makes it clear that that, that protection of the, uh, of the potential victim applies in a marriage situation as well, too. And to say that, oh, well, you know, their religion or culture says that, uh, and they believed, and the judge found that the guy and the, uh, the wife at the time honestly believed that he was entitled to have sex with her any time he wanted, whether she consented or not. Um, so, that, you know, you could say, well, oh, he didn't know what the Canadian law is. Section 19 of our criminal code uh, articulates a long-standing principle, which is that ignorance of the law is not a defense. And hard as it is to believe in any of this, on something as, you know, uh, philosophically or societal principles, the importance of this, this judge doesn't even mention those sections, okay? In my opinion, that alone is grounds for an appeal, but I think the larger issue uh, is that we should be extremely concerned about this because literally what this ruling means is that the protections that are provided by our secular law and the legal obligations are being tossed out the window by this judge because he believes that the individual believed that his culture or religion said he didn't have to follow Canadian law. That's alarming, and that's something that uh, I am hoping to read in the days to come, that the uh, government of Ontario, the provincial uh, crown that has the jurisdiction, is filing an appeal in this case, and that our self-proclaimed feminist prime minister will also direct the justice minister that the federal government will seek to intervene in support of the appeal, because this is a, a decision that has significant negative societal ramifications, in my opinion. Now, why would the uh, judgment be under a publication ban? Because it uh, names, it, the, we put in restrictions to protect identification of the, uh, uh, the complainant, and there's, there was also uh, uh, his children that were charged in relation to his children as well, too. Okay, so what I also don't understand is, given the fact that the law is very clear, and the law is also very clear that ignorance is no excuse... Yeah. What did the judge mean when he repeatedly said, and I, I really thought Mr. Duffy did a great job with the story, uh, what did he mean when he says the prosecution didn't make its case? Well, what, what he's getting at is that the, in any criminal charge, the Crown is required to prove two elements, what's called actus reus, which is, in other words, the actual specific act, in this case it would be the sexual assault, uh, and also what's known as mens rea, or criminal intent. And because this guy said that he believed, or that he concluded that the accused believed he was entitled to force himself sexually on his wife, and his wife believed that as well, too, that that somehow meant that he lacked a criminal intent. The point of it is, however, that our law 
supersedes a cultural or religious belief, and the protections that we create in our law actually should take precedence. This was a historical case. This uh, had happened back in uh, 2002, and it wasn't until about uh, 10 or 11 years later when the uh, marriage had broken up and there was a custody dispute, and the, uh, the woman happened to be talking to the police, and in doing so, as she was explaining some of these circumstances, she realized that the law supposedly was there to protect her. Mm-hmm. And so the police said, well, actually, uh, he's not allowed to have done that. The incident in particular, uh, he was angry about something and uh, grabbed her, pulled her down onto the couch, was pulling off her pants. She, the, the, court, the judge found as a fact, and you're correct that he said that he found her believable and him not, mm-hmm. the judge found as a fact that she had said, stop it, stop it, three separate times, but he continued anyway. Not only that, Mr. Duffy points out in his story that the, uh, as we said, the the judge said she, the wife, was a credible witness yes. who gave straightforward answers. And then he says uh, the uh, the husband, the accused, was argumentative, evasive as a witness, and he, the judge, re- rejected his account as not believable. So if he rejects the account as not believable, what's he doing declaring him not guilty? Because he feels the judge concluded that the belief that he was entitled to force himself sexually on his wife because of his religion or culture was something that uh, meant that he didn't have the necessary mental intent. Yeah, but we're not, we don't put judges on the bench so they can interpret law according to the personal beliefs. Um, That's not entirely um, accurate. That is part of the role of judges is to interpret the circumstances, but that's what I find so offensive about the case is that the findings that the judge made, yeah. I would suggest, are absolutely clear in the context of our law that that is not a defense. Scott, there would be so much, would have to be so many cases of all stripes and sizes, of all descriptions, that have entered Canadian courtrooms where the accused doesn't know the specifics of the law he or she is accused of having broken. That doesn't mean that because they're ignorant of that particular law that they broke that they should have the option of getting off. That's Section 19. You're right. This one goes farther, though, because in their... These were uh, both of them. It was an arranged but not a forced marriage. The girl had been in in Canada for about three years, and she uh, went back to uh, Gaza at the request of her uh, uh, parents and married uh, a Palestinian Muslim. She was Palestinian Muslim as well, too. And she also believed that as as a religious cultural dictate that she was obliged to consent to it. And my point simply is that uh, what I think this judge has made a terrible mistake in is that religious and cultural beliefs, and frankly, whatever the religion or culture is, do not supersede Canadian law. Hello, you're living in Canada, you're entitled to protections of the law, and you're obliged to follow the law. And there was no statute of limitations to absolve him of the act. No, no. This is just something that, I mean, it was a historical offense, and look... I think in fairness, you could take into account the circumstances when you were dealing with sentencing and say, like, this happened a long time ago and they were, you know, unusual circumstances in the sense of that he thought he could do this. But that doesn't take away the legal obligation not to act in this faction or the legal protection. Mm-hmm. So the judge could have, you know, reduced the sentence. But to actually say that the law doesn't apply in these circumstances, I think is a dangerous dangerous undermining of basic and important Canadian legal principles. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. So here's the story again. A, a, a man in Ottawa has sexual intercourse with his wife against her wishes. They both believe that he can do that because of their cultural past. And then years later, a number of years later, the wife finds out that he couldn't have sex with her against her wishes, and she lays charges. It goes to court. And uh, the judge decides that even though she's credible and her husband, former husband, is not, that he's not going to find this husband guilty because the husband didn't know that having sex with his wife against her wishes was against the law. He didn't know that. So... Scott, I remember speaking with um, with a criminal lawyer in Toronto on the program, 
And he had been advising women, and he said this was fairly standard, he had been advising women who came to him and uh, complained of a sexual assault, perhaps not to report it, because if it goes to court, it's going to be he said, she said, which can ultimately be more difficult for the woman. So he, just, he would advise women not to, not to pursue it unless they really were determined to. And then he had one night, he saw his little girl sleeping, three years of age, and he thought, what if this happened to my daughter when she's an adult? And since that time, he's never made that suggestion to women any longer. Yeah. Well, and, and that's part of it. I mean, our legal system has evolved. Uh, we've actually changed laws specifically to recognize uh, the circumstances in which these kinds of offenses can take place. Uh, and, and that's what makes this so offensive, because the, the accused, the guy never denied doing it or that she said, you know, stop it, stop it. He never denied it. That, I mean, that's what's even more outrageous about this uh, particular case. And I am very surprised and alarmed that two weeks afterwards, we still have not seen any notification from the Ontario uh, Attorney General's office that they're going to appeal. And so I would urge your listeners, as we've done in the past, Roy, as you remember, uh, if you're as uh, alarmed and outraged about this uh, uh, case, uh, get in touch uh, with your, uh, your member of Parliament in Ontario, your member of Provincial Parliament in Ontario, and ask them to get in touch with Ontario Attorney General Nazir Yaqvi and say, like, are, are you going to appeal this case? And if not, why not? And if you're listening anywhere outside Ontario, as many listeners are on this program, on the Chorus Radio Network, get in touch with the Ontario Attorney General's office. Sir, or get in touch with your MP and have them raise yeah. it with the Minister of Justice to yeah. find out whether or not, given the national issues involved, and this is our national criminal code, whether the federal government will itself be urging the Ontario government to file the appeal. And imagine that appeal. Scott, imagine the impact a judgment like this, particularly if it's not appealed, the impact this judgment will have on women who may be newcomers to this country, or not newcomers, but women who are, are intimidated by their significant others and maybe felt some, yeah, maybe I have an option here with, with, with all the stories and all the reports about the sexual abuse and sexual harassment in the news now, feeling maybe I can go forward. And then they hear about an issue like this or a case like this, and it shuts them down potentially. See, that, that's what I find so offensive about this, is that I think it's a denigration of what is Canadian culture. Okay? We have made a conscious decision as a society that we're going to have certain laws that protect victims and, and in these kinds of circumstances generally female victims that's a decision we made as a society and it's a protection that is available to every person that is in this country and it is an obligation on every person that's in this country and we should not be turning a blind eye to people that break those those laws and that in effect violate that cultural decision that means being a Canadian and being part of Canada. Okay, this is going to, and we have a minute left, this is going to call, uh, make you crawl into the head of this judge, cause you to crawl into his head. Do you think that political correctness could have an impact, could have, could have been an influence on this decision? I don't know. Uh, but I, I can tell you quite apart from you know, the, uh, uh, the larger social issues. In my opinion, the judgment is really badly written. The judge doesn't even deal with the specific legal sections of the criminal code to address, you know, why it is that he's ignoring them. Mm -hmm. And on that basis alone, I think that the, uh, without any question whatsoever, the decision should be overturned. All right, Scott, good talking to you. All right, Roy. Scott Newark on The Roy Green Show. If you're in Ontario, get in touch with your MPP and get in, or get in touch with the or both of them, with the Attorney General's office. And if you're outside the province and this case matters, then get in touch with your member of parliament and tell them you expect the federal government to launch an appeal. That's a terrible situation. Just absolutely terrible. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Beauties and the Beast, Saturdays. On the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. It is time for Catherine Swift, WorkingCanadians.ca. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Roy. Linda Leatherdale, former money editor of the Toronto Sun, currently vice president. I don't mean that's a sort of a transitory <laughs> position. <laughs> <laughs> vice, vice president of Cambria, 
Canada. I was going to say for the foreseeable future, but <laughs> that only gets digs the hole deeper. <laughs> How are you? I'm great, Roy. How are you? I'm doing just great. And with us as well, former Liberal Member of Parliament, seatmate to the Prime Minister, Michelle Simpson. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Roy. Okay, I want to play something for you. Senator Denise Batters, who was on this program, while you were away, Michelle, uh, the senator joined us on on one of our segments. And uh, she engaged our Minister of Finance in conversation in uh, in the Senate, and it's it's about five minutes, but we t- we took about fifty seconds of it, and and have a listen to how some of that went. So, Minister Morneau, who takes responsibility and who bears accountability for even including those measures in the first place? You, your finance officials, the Prime Minister. If those proposals came from your department, who will lose their jobs for that? We uh, uh, we will uh, continue to move forward with uh, with approaches that we uh, will see will ensure their tax system is fair. Uh, we believe that uh, Canadians elected us uh, to make sure that we could uh, grow the economy and ensure that the benefits of that growth were not going disproportionately to those that are already advantaged. So, what did that have to do with the question? Well, this is just a continuation of what we've seen. Well, I know, but, uh, but let's put it in Catherine. In front of parliamentary committees, yeah. the Senate or whatever, it's, it's, uh, I hope all Canadians are watching this farce, because unfortunately it has become such a farce where the finance minister, the prime minister, and other ministers uh, have just obfuscated, uh, you know, baffle-gabbed, uh, and not not answered any questions. Well, we know. I mean, this is all we hear from them. This is that we knew exactly. I, I didn't know that he was going to say um as often as the prime minister. Maybe that's catching. I don't know. But it really, his answer his answer had nothing to do with the question that was asked. Michelle, is there a course that MPs take on question avoidance? Yeah, there actually is. <laughs> Tell us, please. Oh, it or not, <laughs> and it's in the media training, <laughs> do not answer the question you're asked. <laughs> you just provide, uh, you know, to use Catherine, Catherine's expression, baffle gab. Even if it won't get you into trouble, you don't answer questions. Now, you know what I used to do on this show? When I'd get these people on, whether it was a prime minister, particularly prime ministers, or federal ministers or premiers or or provincial premiers. Amazing. I just realized prime minister, current prime minister, and none of his ministers have been on this program. I wonder why. All the, other, all the others did, whether they were conservative or liberal, they all came. But what I just uh, realized is I've forgotten what I was going to say. Um, no, what I, what I would do is I would... When they gave me a non-answer, they would stop, and I would stop. And I'd say nothing. Huh. Nothing. Good strategy. And there'd be dead air. And then they would eventually feel uncomfortable because they were still up, right? They still had the bat in their hands. So they'd swing again, and then they'd get in trouble. The only one who, who didn't fall for that was Stephen Harper. He would outweigh me because he'd know eventually Green's going to have to start talking because he's a broadcaster <laughs> and he can't handle dead air. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, the sad part is that we, we the citizens, the taxpayers, et cetera, deserve answers. And it's t- I totally agree, though. It's, it's not unique to this government. But I must say that the level of arrogance uh, and entitlement in this government is quite... Yeah. Quite shocking. It's always there in any government, but this one seems to be really taking it to Why? <laughs> Why? Why? Because they won a majority. But it's not they just that, Michelle. There were look, look at Gretchen. I mean, I had bones to pick with him, but they did. They did some things I agreed with. You know, it's not. It's not as simple as that. No, I know. It, 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 I think we've that. got a crowd here that are mostly very privileged people that have grown yeah. up privileged, and notably at the top, uh, you know, and not just Trudeau, but, but uh, you know, senior ministers, and, and they have grown up with a sense of entitlement, and, and they think that's the norm for everybody, and of course it's not, quite the contrary. Uh, but 
they seem to come to power thinking we we have all the answers for everybody's problems. We are the only way to think. There, there just seems to be a, a level here that I I don't believe I've ever seen before. Okay, sometimes you guys can't hear each other very well. So uh, Catherine Michelle was trying to get uh, answer, answer one of your points. Go ahead, Michelle. Well, I agree with Catherine. There's a sense of entitlement, but there's I'm also sensing that if the Canadian public gets together and pushes back, this government tends to fold like a cheap tent. On the Carolina coast during hurricane season. Um, (laughs) Linda? Okay, well, first of all, I want to say I can't hear Michelle, so I'm sorry. But, uh, yeah, this arrogance, the height of arrogance, I mean, we've talked about this before, but really what has my blood boiling is the fact that Morneau, our finance minister, only gets fined $200 by leaving out the price of his French villa. I mean, he's under the gun here. You just talked about he wants fair taxation, and he's going after the small business sector, which basically are our largest job creators, and yet he himself is playing a shell game. I, I'm, I'm disgusted. I'm totally disgusted. Is he completely, uh, has he paid up or is he still, is it still a little nebulous as to whether or not everything's on the table with Bill Morneau? Oh, I, I think it's very nebulous. Every time, and of course, the thing is, he, he, he says he's made his reparations and put things in blind trust and so on. But it, it just seems it's the layers of an onion thing. You know, the, the more we discover, the more we find we have yet to discover. So I don't think this is resolved at all. Yeah, it's and not. And I mean, $200 fine? This is a slap in the face of taxpayers in this that, country. You know, okay, uh, Michelle? Let's start again, please, Michelle. I apologize. Okay. It's our, it's yeah, our, it's our state-of-the-art phone system. Go ahead, yeah. Michelle. Okay. Um, I said $200 fine is bizarre. I said email to, to you guys that he probably tips more than that at a fine dinner. He must have laughed. After everything that happened, yeah. it's 200 bucks. Yep. Well, his reputation's in tatters. Well, yes, so I know, I know. But, maybe but, it's not financial, but yeah. reputationally, terrible. Yeah, but I, th- I think he probably had the giggles for a while. <laughs> yeah, uh, probably, yeah. Because if that's all we can do, then we're impotent as far as policing our governments is concerned internally. But well, we know that. We know what rules. happened to Michelle. Yeah, they what made happened the rules. Yeah. Okay, kids. Um, what else do we want to get at here? Well, Canada's aging population. I'm going to be speaking to the folks at Fraser Institute about this tomorrow, but I'd like your thoughts. Canada's aging population could push government deficits to $143 billion by 2045. And uh, is... This is. I'm not aiming this at the Fraser Institute, but is this a uh, learn to hate your granny uh, time we're living in? <laughs> I hope not, because I just became a granny a little while ago. <laughs> oh dear. Well, what what kills me about this whole aging population thing is policymakers seem to pretend they just discovered it. <laughs> We've known this is coming for decades now. Decades. We see it already happening with health care. Uh, just, just this week in Ontario, we saw somebody waiting four and a half years to see a neurologist. We see a breakdown of our, of our social services, and health care, of course, is a pretty darn important one, that should have been foreseen ages ago. So shame on governments that, you know, they pretend this is something they're just discovering. And you know what will happen to that person who sees the neurologist four and a half years from now? <laughs> probably be dead. No, no, let me tell you what's going to happen. They sit down with the neurologist, they talk, yeah. they do a couple of tests, and the neurologist comes back and says, you should have come to see me sooner. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my goodness. Well, it, and but this, is a, this is a very serious is, issue we're talking for all about, Canadians. We're bragging right now. Canada's economy is great. Uh, we're going to be able to cut deficits, and we're going to be able to do this and that. If you look at this Fraser Institute report, it is very, very scary. But also, Catherine shared with us a, an article, and it's from Philip Cross. Okay, hold on to that. Linda, hold on to that. 
Yeah. Because we okay. have to take a break. We'll talk about that. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Linda, what were you going to say? Well, I was just saying that Catherine shared a story with us this week, um, a former StatsCan official who really is deep, digging deeper into the numbers that we are getting out of Ottawa about how great the economy is, that they are balancing the books, that they can spend, spend, spend their way out of this. And we've heard this so many times. I want to remind, you know, they said the debt to GDP has come down. Remember, Roy, how we went? Then Paul Martin, finance minister. Catherine, you were part of this. I'm sure, Michelle. And we said, we are heading down the debt road. And we are now, these politicians have forgotten all the hard work that we did. I found it very interesting because Catherine is saying there's another story underneath these numbers. And are we really having the books cooked for us? So, Catherine, I mean, it was a great article. Yeah, well, I, I just thought it encapsulated a lot of what I've been thinking for a while, just from a sort of economist standpoint. And and I, I guess the, the nub of it really is that, uh, well, there's a, there was a few nubs, to be honest, but our economy is being driven right now not by enduring things. Enduring things are investment, because that, that it helps the future. Uh, there are things like growing levels of exports. We don't have any of that. What we have is very indebted consumers continuing to spend, won't go on forever. Very indebted governments continuing to spend, won't go on forever. And, and also, um, levels of, uh, it, when we compare it to, to previous years, for example, the, that 4.1% GDP growth that the government was crowing about in the second quarter of 2017 was actually being, it's always a comparison to the previous year. So you have to take it in context. The previous year in Canada, we had all those horrible wildfires in Fort McMurray that decimated the economy. So, again, context is huge, as you were saying, Linda. And here, what, what worries me is that I really, I really got to wonder if the people in Ottawa, the people in the finance department aren't stupid. they got to know this. How can they support the level of spending we're having right now? We are totally vulnerable to the inevitable downturn we will have. Downturns happen roughly every 10 years or so. Our last recession was 2008. And what year are we in now? Oh, yeah, right, the end of 2017. Anyway, it's a big, big black cloud hanging over our economy, and I think the government is ignoring it to have short-term gains. I hate to say this, but good old Joe Clark, eh? Uh, (laughs) But we're going to be facing some serious pain. Didn't you also uh, write something about... um NAFTA coming into play here and and having well, an the impact. US, yes, the U.S. Yeah. Is, is the whole other question mark. The the tax. We'll, we'll see what happens in the next week or two. But tax cuts are very much on the agenda south of the border. Just do people really think that won't have a big effect on Canada? NAFTA. If NAFTA were to collapse, which. Ugh, Heaven forbid. I hope that doesn't happen. It's super important to our country, as well as the U.S. and Mexico. Big, big problems there, too. So, yeah, the, the, the whole, you know, the whole question mark that is U.S. policy right now, our biggest economic influence in Canada, another, another great unknown out there. Michelle? I couldn't agree more. Um, Catherine had alluded to the fact that governments, and it's not just this one, that just absolutely put blinders on with respect to potential problems down the road. But we've got sunny ways with no dark clouds. And (laughs) I'm thinking, you know, I really can't believe it. The last finance minister, I believe, that had a contingency fund was Paul Martin. It was. Well, well Flaherty it had some too, huge. It Flaherty, was Flaherty did have $3 billion annually in a contingency, yeah. too. And to be fair, the current government has... Has has got they actually reduced it in the in the economic statement it's two billion but but frankly when you look at the size of the government and the size of our economy two or three That's billion nothing. is chump change okay. it's chump change Michelle I agree but at least it was something and but then you know there have been governments in order to try to balance things or look better 
just blew through the contingency fund. I have about a minute and a bit left here. I just want to run this by you. I mentioned it a couple of times on the air already. And we're going to be speaking to the author of the report tomorrow. Um, the Cato Institute, their, their uh, Cato at Liberty Poll. 71% of Americans say political correctness has silenced discussions society needs to have. And 58% have political views they're afraid to share. What does that speak to, Linda? Oh, my God. We're being silenced. We're being silenced. And we, you know, Roy, you talk about it how many times. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Ontario, like, you know, if you dare to speak up and disagree with something. My husband just said, he pointed this out to me. This is ridiculous. I'm from Aurelia, Ontario, Gordon Lightfoot country. A councillor at City Hall has demanded that the cannons are facing Rama. So they want them turned around the other way. And my husband said, well, face them to City Hall then. I mean, come on, <laughs> yeah. nobody... Well, that's okay. <laughs> and as Lenny, and we're, we're out of time. As Lenny Bruce said, I hate small towns, because after you've seen the cannon in the park, what else is there? <laughs> well, um, that, uh, the pendulum has got to swing you. back. It's gone so far in yeah. the crazy direction for political correctness, it's got to swing back. It's gone. We'll push it. We'll push yeah. the swing. Hopefully. Yeah, we'll do a yeah. ride of 360, right over the top. Okay, kids, see you next okay, Saturday. Okay, Dad. See you next week. <laughs> Talk soon. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.